primary care knowledge boost, interstitial lung disease. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Primary Care Knowledge Boost. We're going to be talking about interstitial lung disease today with Dr. Ashish. He'll be speaking to us about when to be suspicious about a diagnosis of interstitial lung disease, uh, who's at risk and the signs and symptoms. Yeah, he also guides us through what investigations we should do in primary care and how reliable these are, as well as what happens once we've referred someone to clinic. Um, He gives us some pointers about managing exacerbations and he talks us through prognosis and also touches on fitness to fly. So we'll talk through our learning points um, that we have at the end of this episode. And yeah, we found it a really interesting episode, as I'm sure you guys will as well. And we hope you enjoy. My name is Abdul Ashish. I'm one of the consultant respiratory physicians here in Wigan with an interest in interstitial lung disease and bronchiectasis. Brilliant. So when I hear the words interstitial lung disease, um, I often think of fibrosis. Is it the same or what's the definition So interstitial lung disease in itself is a misnomer because it's a wide array of diseases. Mm -hmm. Interstitium really is a space which is um, between the alveoli and the endothelium. And it consists of a lot of things. It's a support system for the lung. It has extracellular matrix, uh, macrophages, some fibroblast, um, alveolar type 2 cells which secrete mucus. So it is a wide array of cells which has an interstitium. So when you talk about interstitial lung disease, people think it is diseases from this space only. Mm -hmm. It is not true. Some conditions such as sarcoid, um, some conditions like alveolar proteinosis, the problem is within the alveoli. So strictly not true, but largely, yes, due to the interstitial problems. So it is not always fibrosis. It can be inflammation, um, granulomas. Uh, but end result can often be a fibrotic process, hence the misnomer of fibrotic lung disease. Ah, okay, and okay. Um, we might refer to it as ILD from now on because we don't have to keep saying interstitial lung disease. Sure, okay? yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Unless it's a catchier way of saying it. Unfortunately not. <laughs> okay, um, so when should we be thinking about ILD as a cause for someone's symptoms? As somebody who is seeing patients in the general practice, I would give some pointers towards uh, the type of patients you might see. Mm -hmm. Um, So you may come across a variety of situations. It may be a patient who's been coming to you with cough and breathlessness. You have treated the underlying airway disease or underlying problems as best as you think, but he continues to be breathless and complains of a dry cough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perhaps that is a situation to think, is there something that is missing? Right. Um, Wigan being an industrial town, people have often worked in the mines, coal mines, cotton mills. And if some of these patients are coming to you saying progressive breathlessness and cough, then it is worth thinking about. Often you get x-ray results which suggest restrictive lung disease or interstitial changes. And if that is the case, then you have to think of interstitial lung disease. And lastly, uh, spirometry. Often you see a restrictive spirometry. A restrictive spirometry in somebody who's not clearly obese, because that's a very common cause of restrictive lung disease, where you think, hmm, I do think there is a problem here. So you may want to think of interstitial lung disease. Um, From clinical examination, sometimes when you're listening to somebody's people's chest, fine inspiratory crepitations. Mm -hmm. If you're unsure, uh, go to IPFnet and it will show the Velcro crepitations that we often refer to. 
and the uh, listeners can have a listen to this, what it sounds like, and fine-tune your ears to when to suspect it clinically. So these are some of the common scenarios that you may come across. Um, often there's a wide variety of other other conditions or other situations which we'll talk about. We'll come on to those exactly. Yeah, um, so I think you've mentioned most of the things, but so are we typically um, in terms of signs and symptoms looking at breathlessness, dry cough, um, or is there anything else that might um, kind of point us in the direction of ILD? So um, breathlessness and dry cough are by far the commonest symptoms. 80% of people with ILD could have some some type of cough, and it's often dry cough yeah. with exertional breathlessness, depending on how severe the disease is. Mm-hmm. Uh, another sign to perhaps look for is clubbing. Yes, oh, yeah. that's yeah. right. It is not often seen in early stages, seen in the later stages, but can be one of the differentials for clubbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet again, coming to clinical examination, if you're thinking or if you feel there's fine inspiratory creps, Mm. or x-ray changes, that is when you need to think of these things. But from signs and symptoms, cough, breathlessness, clubbing, fine inspiratory creps. Lovely. Um, And this was just a random question we thought of when we were going through um, ILD, because we see a lot of coughs in general practice. um, Mm. And we always know that some of the big hitters are asthma, um, post-nasal drip, reflux, things like that. Um, What would make you circumvent the normal bits of doing kind of a chest x-ray, trying PPIs, trying um, nasal sprays, doing spirometry if someone's coming in with a cough? Sure. Um, One of the key things that uh, general practitioners do very well is take a detailed history. And we can focus uh, some of the key elements of a history to identifying the likely patients who may have ILD. If you look at occupation, specifically living in Wigan, People with history of working in coal mines, cotton industry, the mills, shipyards, people who are moved from Liverpool here who worked as electricians or within the docks. Um, These are individuals you may think, hmm, is there any ILD? Uh, Second, people on various cardiac medications, specifically amiodarone, which causes uh, a form of uh, fibrotic lung disease. Patients on long-term antibiotics, nitrofurantoin, can cause interstitial mm-hmm. problems. Uh, people who have rheumatoid or other connective tissue disease, they are breathless, they've got a dry cough, you may want to think ILD first. Mm. And very rarely, uh, patients with family history, it can run in 5 to 15% of familial ILDs. Oh, okay. So people who have fathers, mothers, direct relatives with ILD, dry cough, yeah. And they are probably more likely to have ILD than other commoner causes of cough. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would necessarily think about the significance of family history in that case. But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It is a rare cause. That is something to keep in mind, perhaps. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And are there different subtypes of interstitial lung disease? And is it important for us in primary care to try and differentiate them? Uh, Strictly speaking, there's a wide variety of interstitial lung disease, which we classify in several different ways. But Mm, to keep it simple from from the primary care point of view, I would probably try and identify or at least get history to identify, is this a primary ILD, as in idiopathic form, or is this a secondary form? More specifically, occupational history, drug history, family history and other past medical history may be relevant yeah. for you too. Because uh, 
outcomes are different and treatment regimes or availability of treatments are different for these two different types. Right. So it is significant to try and differentiate at least those two different types. Mm. And I guess you've really covered this because we were thinking about risk factors for ILD. I think, like you said, occupation, family Mm. history, medications and other conditions. Connective tissue diseases. Smoking is a risk factor, so it is is seen more in smokers. Um, It just puts them at a higher risk of having these problems. But you're right. Other past medical history, specifically drug history, it's important to know whether they have connective tissue disease like rheumatoid arthritis or scleroderma or other connective tissue where uh, uh, the interstitial or pulmonary involvement is commoner Uh, and especially uh, inflammatory uh, bowel disease as well. So Crohn's, um, they can get form of interstitial lung disease. Uh, people working in certain occupations, farms, they can get hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, having particular hobbies, music instruments, which has fungus or not been cleaned ah. a long time, big air instruments, you can get into uh, hypersensitivity, pneumonitis. People who have birds. I remember the birds from medical uh, school. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Breed birds, they can get. So it's a whole array of things that can get. Uh, and it's not feasible to get all this history in primary care 10 minutes. Yeah. But if, if there is something standing out, for example, connective tissue disease yeah. or working in the mines or clearly on a meodrone, you perhaps may want to think of it earlier than it's normally thought of. Yeah, brilliant. And you have mentioned a few medications there of the um, amiodarone and the um, nitrofenitoin. Are there any other big ones that we need to be aware of? In uh, primary these care? are the big ones, but anything really can cause interstitial lung disease. It is an abnormal reaction of the body's cellular mechanisms which go wrong yeah. causing this. Um, and what what would you say are the important differentials for us to be considering in someone presenting in this way? So common things being common, your COPD or airway disease is common. Heart failure is a common one because it gives x-ray appearance of interstitial changes and a restrictive spirometry. Right. Yeah. So that is a common one. So heart failure or believed heart failure and they could coexist in a patient's. Yes. If you have yeah. uh, interstitial lung disease, they eventually get corpulmonale and then they get heart failure. So it is quite difficult sometimes to distinguish if traditionally a person has been treated for heart failure. It's just that when things stop working, you have to take a step back and think, am I missing something? Mm. So uh, you have to be careful in evaluating people or having being single track nine when you see patients with heart failure. COPD, bronchiectasis, these can give similar clinical signs, whether it's a crepitations, although if you fine-tune your ears, the fine inspiratory creps of ILD is very, very different from other things. But uh, you can get crepitations in bronchiectasis, you can get COPD with infection, heart failure and ILD. Yeah, exactly. So the um, with the, the website that you mentioned, we'll put a link to that in the IPF. description. Yeah, IPF like, yeah. sounds. Yeah, yeah we'll listen. Yeah. Um, and also, actually, we did do a heart failure episode with um, Dr. Aria, right. um, which is pretty good. So people can have a listen to that to get some maybe help and yes, identify that as an option. Of course. Yeah, yeah. lovely. Um, and in, in terms of investigations, what would you say are the most important investigations when you're looking at a potential diagnosis of ILD? So I, I'll classify those those to be done in primary care yeah. and those we tend to use in secondary care. Mm-hmm. As a general practitioner, 
perhaps uh, a chest x-ray and a spirometry is the only two investigations you need. The spirometry will often show restrictive lung disease, um, where the reduction in the force vital capacity is much greater than the FEV1, and the ratio is supranormal, over 90%. Um, A chest x-ray can be varying. In early certain types of interstitial lung disease, uh, for example, non-specific interstitial pneumonitis, it could be relatively normal. Uh, And the end stage, it could be grossly abnormal, and it could be anything in between. Uh, So a chest x-ray report suggesting the word interstitial changes is perhaps uh, a clue to make the referral on. Mm -hmm. I guess actually those two investigations are pretty helpful because if you're thinking about the other differentials, Mm -hmm. they'll help you to identify things like your COPD. That's right. That's right. And so from that, we can deduce not always to trust an X-ray result being negative. That's right. ruling it out. That's right. So X-ray can be normal in up to 50%. Um, So HRCT gives a greater depth of uh, evaluation of the lung in much more closer sections. Uh, So I think HRCT is the gold standard investigation to look at the lung parenchyma. X-ray in later stages will show restrictive or increased interstitial changes, reduction on lung volume. Yeah. Uh, can be seen as well. But that's how far the x-ray interpretation will go in terms of an ILD. Fine. So don't trust it if it's normal, basically. And don't be requesting lots of HRCTs. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's something because it throws up a whole new gambit of problems and subclassification and types. It's perhaps best to be done by somebody who has an interest in ILD. Mm-hmm. shouldn't stop where facilities are available or GPs have the access to HRCT if you want to screen people and send the right people along. But often you will find abnormalities when you do CTs, then mm-hmm. you eventually end up referring to secondary care to a chest physician anyway. Exactly. And what about um, blood tests? Is there any role for that in diagnosis of ILD? Uh, not specifically. When when patient comes to secondary care, we do a number of tests, including NHRCT and some focused blood tests. So we are always looking to rule out secondary causes of interstitial lung disease. Yeah. Hence, we always do a connective tissue disease screen, yeah. rheumatoid factor, anchor levels yeah. uh, to look at those problems which can eventually lead to fibrotic lung conditions. Okay. Um, and those are the blood tests that we would be requesting from our end. Yeah. Uh, in hypersensitivity pneumonitis, we could often request an IgE and specific allergen panels. Mm-hmm. But yet again, it, it's based on uh, our initial evaluation, what the diagnosis should be. Yeah. As for the primary care, I probably would say no. No, fantastic. I guess the only thing that we'd be doing blood tests for is to rule out other things. Um, BNP, so heart BNP, failure. Yeah, maybe yeah. anemia, if anemia. Breathless, things like that. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And did you mention sarcoidosis earlier on? Do you get many people with the ACE uh, blood test? Uh, they can do, yes. Um, uh, often sarcoid is, again, a secondary care diagnosis yeah. uh, uh, simply because uh, sarcoid is often a histological diagnosis. doesn't necessarily have to be, but often it is. Um, then we use ACE to measure the disease activity on a longer term rather than to make a diagnosis. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. And in terms of um, looking at spirometry as a test, how reliable is that in confirming your diagnosis? 
Again, I would like to say spirometry is an effort-based test. Yeah. Um, it also depends how good the person who's doing the spirometry as well as the person who's coaching them to do it. Uh -huh. yeah. um, hence, not always fully reliable. Mm -hmm. So what you would see in established fibrotic lung disease is a restrictive disorder. Mm -hmm. That is the uh, pattern that we often see. You can see an obstructive spirometry if... Um, it is associated with COPD. Right, Often yeah. people with COPD will get a type of interstitial lung disease called combined pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema, CPFE. Okay. So in that, you could have an obstructive picture, but in very early stages, you could have a normal spirometry as well. Yeah. So it all so spirometry uh, as a test to distinguish. Uh, is not a good test because you can get a whole variety depending on the underlying problem. Yep. But if it is restrictive, it probably adds to your clinical suspicion that that might be the case. Um, and if you, I think you maybe did mention it earlier, but would you mind just going through what the restrictive pattern would be on spirometry? So the spirometry has three values, the FEV1, FEC, and the ratio that we look at. In restrictive lung conditions, the reduction in force vital capacity, the amount of air you're able to forcefully blow out goes down because the lungs are scarred and small. Yep. And the capacity goes down and the reduction is more than the FEV1. Hence, the ratio of FEV1 to FEC is supranormal yep. because the denominator goes down more than the numerator. Mm. So the ratio becomes 90 and above. Gotcha. So we're kind of obsessed with red flags. Well, we always ask about red flags. Um, what important things in a history or examination um, so would make you worry about a patient? And we've kept that quite open. In, in a respiratory history, uh, weight loss is of a concern. Hemoptysis is of concern. Changes in the x-ray and rapidly increasing breathlessness is also something you may want to get an opinion sooner rather than later. Those are the people that would need urgent referrals, really. Is that mm -hmm. fair to say? Yeah, yeah. So in context of uh, interstitial lung disease or suspected interstitial lung disease, if they're hypoxic, you may want to let the um, consultant know they're already hypoxic. Yeah. Uh, if you have signs of right heart failure, um, uh, you might want to let them know that clinically I suspect ILD, but I have noticed right heart failure, raised AVP in somebody who's not known to have heart failure. Mm -hmm. So that might suggest they may require an earlier uh, review. Somebody who was previously well and suddenly going breathless in a short period of time, despite usual treatments, uh, again, is somebody you might want to highlight to your secondary care team for an earlier review. Okay. And in terms of hypoxia, what kind of level are we chatting about? There? So uh, normal would be 94 and above the resting SAS. So if anybody has a SAS less than 92% on room air with no particular explanation for it, yeah. you might want to let the receiving team know that this is a situation on hand in yeah. which they might want to expedite how soon they see them. Okay. Yeah. Is there anyone that you think should be referred on the same day? In in relation to ILD, I would say perhaps not. Mm. Um, you might want to let the secondary care team know if somebody is known to have ILD yeah. and is not improving after a step deterioration, mm. after the routine things that you can do in primary care, such as 
um, uh, antibiotics or steroid to treat a, a lower respiratory tract infection. Yeah. Somebody who's clearly very hypoxic, you might want to admit them for urgent evaluation. Yeah. Uh, but in the context of ILD, somebody who's known ILD is not getting better with routine treatment. You need to let the team know as it could be an exacerbation of his underlying in- interstitial lung disease, which may need a little bit of a more urgent uh, attention. But anybody who's grossly hypoxic, you probably want to send them across. You're right, like hypoxic breathless, just your standard unwell-looking patient, really. That's right. Okay. Um, And when you mentioned there about letting the team know, um, how urgent would you want to know about somebody like that? Um, Is it kind of pick up the phone and call or send a letter? Various teams across the country have different setups. I'll talk to you specifically about Wigan. Yes. Uh, so in Wigan, we have uh, um, a support, uh, great support from our specialist nurse, Sandra Doma, and her team of ILD specialist nurses. We are quite lucky to have more than one. And there's a voicemail number. Um, and if, if you're able to call this number and leave a voicemail, mm. she would pick up the message the same day or the next day. If at any point you're worried about a patient, just pick up the phone, either ring me directly or drop me an email. I'm pretty active on looking at this or send us a fax via the uh, secretary. And if I'm available, I will certainly see the patient uh, straight away. Great. That's good to know. Thank you. Um, so we've sent them to um, clinic. Um, you've done your investigations. You do think that it is looking like ILD. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens next? I'll take you through what happens in a typical clinic. So we get a detailed history for secondary causes of ILD. Uh, we establish where the ILD is based on the spirometry, just based on spirometry in the initial consultation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we assess where they are in terms of clinically. Um, if they've not already had a CT, so if you think they've got ILD and when you refer, before I see them, I will see the request and I would already have requested an HRCT and lung function. So when they come to a clinic, they almost always have a HRCT and lung function for me to give them a more rounded answer to what the problem is uh, and how severe I think. So so there's an assessment of the causes Uh and there's assessment of the disease. Based on this, then we will either decide to uh, investigate further, for example, uh, often the connective tissue blood test can only be done once they come to the clinic, so we send send for that. Uh, we'll always provide information as much as possible in the clinic, whether the severity of the ILD, the cause, what we think, and what the management plan is. And the management plan is often one of three. Okay. Further investigations, such as a bronchoscopy and bronchial valve lavage for somebody hypersensitivity pneumonitis, if the CT is not clear-cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, if the diagnosis is something like IPF. IPF means idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, uh, either referral to a tertiary center or monitoring if they fall outside the NICE treatment guidelines. Uh, and three is surveillance, uh, where we say, mm, uh, this is what it is. The disease has not reached a threshold where we need to treat, but we need to keep an eye on it. Mm-hmm. Other than that, we do the holistic sort of assessment. Does he need oxygen, smoking cessation, uh, about weight gain or weight loss, depending on where they are, how remaining active is important, the flu jab, and contact details of our support group and our specialist nurse in case they need any further help. Brilliant. That's a typical clinic. Yeah. And they have a session then with the ILD nurse. 
they will take them through in a much slower pace than I do and uh, have a bit more detailed chat. Often we just take over the care simply because it's not common enough in general practice mm -hmm. to say, you do this. So we often take over the care, but provide support mechanisms to how they can contact us. Yeah, I didn't realize there was such a thorough setup there in terms of a support network as well. That's really good. Yeah, so the support network largely comes from our specialist nurses mm -hmm. who really run the service brilliantly. Uh, they're very, very responsive, very quick to respond. They almost form a personal relationship with all these patients because uh, we have to see them long term. Yeah. yeah, they tend to get to know them. Mm. Uh, our specialists also run a support group and we've been doing for the last four years. All new patients are given the invite to come. We get about 15 patients and we have invited speakers every time mm. with a general chit chat. I think they tend to learn off each other yeah. uh, about the things which may be important to patients. That's really nice. Yes, lovely. Um, so what would be our role in primary care then in terms of as part of the team managing these patients? One of the most important things from the primary care perspective is for you to know that this is a life-limiting disease Okay. in a lot of the cases. Yeah. Not always, but a lot of the times. It's a complex condition and communication with the treating team is important. Uh, we need to know who the treating consultant is and how to contact them. Yeah. Other than that, in primary care, I think it is good to reinforce smoking cessation, yeah. good lifestyle choices, being active, um, the importance of pulmonary rehabilitation, vaccinations, yeah. and to report to you if the symptoms or there's a step change in symptoms yeah. uh, sooner rather than later. Okay, so it's just being that primary point of contact for them if anything's changing. Sure. And in terms of shared care, sometimes we do see people um, who are on mycophenolate, for example, um, and the, there's a bit of shared care that does happen. Can you talk us through a bit about what um, mm. what's currently in place in terms of shared care? And Again, there's a huge variability in what is available across different boroughs, different uh, uh, regions in UK. Mm. Uh, from our perspective, uh, we have been fortunate enough to be running a joint rheumatology ILD clinic and we are quite used to using disease-modifying drugs for patients who have ILD as a result of connective tissue disease or other hypersensitive pneumonitis. From the uh, G-triple-M-G guidances there in terms of shared care protocol, and we've got it for three drugs, mycophenolate, uh, azathioprine, and methotrexate. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, so the uh, guidelines are available freely on the uh, shared care guidelines, but these are the only three drugs we uh, expect uh, sort of shared care agreement. Mm -hmm. We always initiate the drugs and we monitor them till they're stable. Mm -hmm. And after that, we will request the general practitioner whether they are able to look after. Mm -hmm. Again, there's a variability in uh, some practices not being able to offer that level of support, in which case we continue looking after yeah. monitoring and delivery of the or prescription of the drug. Um, and yes, so I'm, I think you're right. Yeah, all on GMMG, there's um, really good documents about how often the blood monitoring and everything needs to happen for all of those shared care drugs. That's right. You mentioned pulmonary rehab um, there. 
have you got any tips on how to get people to use it? Because I, I, I have noticed a little bit of resistance in some patients that I've seen um, with wanting to get involved with pulmonary rehab. So pulmonary rehab really is a very underused resource. Yeah. It has great health benefits. Uh, in ILD as well, there's emerging evidence that pulmonary rehab really is helpful for the patient. One way to sell it really to patients is to say it may improve their exercise tolerance. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that they struggle with is exertional breathlessness and pulmonary rehab has shown that it will help the amount of distance they are able to do. We see a wide variety of patients and some simply don't like group therapy. Yeah. And for those, I think just to convince with the benefit that they have in sharing the disease information. It is not just about exercise. They give valuable tips on how to manage your condition, manage yourself, uh, breathing techniques. Uh, some guidance about nutrition is also given. So it is an overall well-being, not just exercise that they get. Okay. Direct referral to pulmonary rehab in our patch uh, is possible. That the GPs can directly write to oh, Tier okay. 2 service pulmonary rehab. Uh, and they will see them is provided there is a diagnosis of underlying conditions which is accepted for pulmonary rehab, COPD, um, ILD. Um, sometimes patients with bronchiectasis and exercise limitations will also benefit. Okay. So anybody with respiratory problems, the exercise limitation will benefit from pulmonary rehab. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know we can refer in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do get good. referrals uh, from GPs saying, can you see him for pulmonary rehab? In which case, we just redirect the referral letter to the pulmonary rehab team to say, our colleague has requested a pulmonary rehab for somebody who has chronic lung disease. Can you please see? Fantastic. Perfect. And yeah, it's nice that it's not just the exercise. I think that will be quite useful going forward, being able to tell patients. It's kind of a bit of a package about how to manage things. Um, what about oxygen therapy? When should we be thinking about that and how is that initiated? Oxygen therapy in ILD, um, again, we often assess in clinic. Mm -hmm. So anybody with a significant desaturation, that is 4% or more on exercise, we send them for uh, assessment. Yeah. Um, uh, SATs of less than 92% with known interstitial lung disease, again, we send them for oxygen assessment. They have strict criteria on who gets the oxygen and who doesn't, yeah. but we definitely send them for further assessment in these individuals. Okay. Um, so it's not really something that we're managing. It's more done through the clinic. Correct. Lovely. Um, and after a diagnosis of ILD, are there any emergencies that we need to be aware of? In terms of emergencies, uh, always look out for the red flag signs because there is a increased preponderance of lung cancer with patients with ILD. Right. So if there is any step change, and often we only see them six or 12 months, and in the interim, things can change. So if somebody is losing weight, somebody has hemoptysis, or x-ray has some new changes, which is not typical of infection that should highlight the need for further quicker review yeah, uh, from the secondary care team. Grand. Yeah, perfect. And for people with sort of an exacerbation of symptoms or a step change, mm. um, do we treat them differently? I know you mentioned before about, so if they came and they're more breathless and that po possibly their cough might have changed. Mm. Um, ordinarily, I think we're normally thinking about asthma and COPD and steroids or antibiotics 
depending on what's appropriate. Do we always treat them like that or is there a certain things that we should be aware of when we're managing patients? So patients with a known diagnosis of ILD are prone to the similar sort of problem anywhere with anyone with airway diseases, respiratory tract infections. Yeah. We know that uh, from research that the amount of bugs or pathogens that reside the microbiomes within the lungs are at a higher prevalence in patients with ILD. And perhaps they are prone to respiratory tract infections. And when they do, uh, it can aggravate or make their pulmonary fibrosis go more aggressive. Okay. It can lead to a cascade of changes which may result in the fibrotic lung disease rapidly deteriorating. Yes. And therefore, I think it's important to see these people early on. And if they show signs of respiratory tract infection to treat them as you would normally treat a person with um, an underlying chronic lung disease, consideration of antibiotics, some steroids if it's appropriate, um, and a review, uh, perhaps a review in a week or 10 days uh, to say, are you getting better? Or to leave that information if you're not getting better do come back and see me. Yeah. yeah. And then that's leading on to and that, the team now. Yeah. And that, if on review, they're hypoxic, they are no better, they say they feel different, they're more breathless, uh, let the secondary care team know for a quickish evaluation uh, that they might be able to do on their end. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. And it's the same um, kind of dosing of steroids and antibiotics we'd be using as that's else right. with it. That's okay. right. If you have the intelligence of having... Uh, known their previous sputum microbiology, that might be good for some targeted treatment if relevant or if if you know that information. And going back to, you mentioned about the importance of understanding that ILD can be a life-limiting condition. Um, in terms of prognosis, I mean, obviously it'll be depending sure. on what type. Can you give us a, a rough idea so, or? On ballpark, uh, uh, like I'd said before, the primary and secondary types of interstitial lung disease, the primary I refer to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or IPF, yeah. uh, and three to five years is what uh, ballpark figure average life expectancies. Yeah. In other type of interstitial lung disease, whether it's connective tissue disease or uh, autoimmune or hypersensitivity so different types of drugs that we can use and the life expectancy could be much better uh, but it all depends on where they are in the severity of their disease yeah okay so it's hard to say like anything. it is hard to say but with the ipfs you know yeah this yeah. is Three roughly it's quite significant actually mm. yeah. yeah yeah how important is it to diagnose um ild early it is vitally important to diagnose ILD very early simply because of the array of treatment options we have now. Till about five years ago, the treatment options were very limited. But with the new antifibrotics, we have uh, at least two drugs which have been licensed and approved by NICE. Um, and uh, there is emerging evidence to suggest that these drugs may even work for uh, patients with progressive ILD. Uh, so it is very, very important to have a high clinical index of suspicion and send these patients along. Um, even if they don't need treatment, we will monitor them or we will institute symptom-based care as appropriate. Yeah. So it's vitally important because the timeframes are narrow. Yeah, mm, definitely, yeah. 
Brilliant. Um, we do get quite a lot of requests coming through about being fit to fly and mm. things. Um, specifically thinking about ILD, have you got any tips relating to that? So there is some guidance to, um, not specific to ILD really, but some guidance in generally uh, tips uh, for fit to fly. If somebody's got a resting satso over 95, mm-hmm. fit to fly. Okay. okay. 92 to 95 needs a hypoxic challenge test. Right. Less than 92 requires in-flight oxygen. This is a very, very mm. rough guide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The local hypoxic challenge test we have to refer to within show. Oh, do we? Okay. Uh, it's not available locally in Wigan or Bolton. It's to within show hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, because the guidance is so vague, I have, uh, uh, I will attach a paper. I've got a paper for you guys to oh, look through uh, in different conditions. But this is the ballpark. Yeah. For for the purposes of the interview. yeah, that's nice to have a sort of simple guide as well. Very very yeah. very rough guide. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, that's nice. And yeah, we'll try and attach that. Um, if you can send it to us, that'd be great. Yes, yeah. thank you. Um, and from your perspective in secondary care, do you think there's anything that primary care clinicians could be doing better in terms of ILD? Uh, certainly, uh, one of the um, greatest help that we could get perhaps or support from us primary care colleagues is to have a high index of suspicion for these cases and refer early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, reviewing our own data, it um, uh, for the last five years, it appears that about 50% of patients are referred uh, at a very late stage Gosh. and perhaps... Uh, you know, other than palliative support or symptom control support, we are limited in options. Mm-hmm. Um, now, since the availability of newer drugs, which could modify the course of the disease, it is imperative uh, that the awareness about interstitial lung disease is a little bit more higher than what it used to be. Yeah. Um, and it will be a great support to us if the primary care colleagues are able to refer these patients early on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a shocking statistic if 50% are coming that late. Mm. Yeah, we really yeah. do need to get a bit better, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much um, for speaking to us today all about ILD. Yeah. Um, we're looking forward to coming back and speaking to you about bronchiectasis um, quite soon as well. Thank you. All right, thanks. Thank you. So, thank you so much to Dr. Ashish for that really interesting episode. Exactly, yeah. It was brilliant, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, it was great. Um, so, let's share our learning points. What did you learn, Lisa? <laughs> Um, So I was quite surprised by the link with family history and interstitial lung disease. Um, I didn't realise that that was something that I should be asking in cases where I'm suspecting interstitial lung disease. And I was also surprised that the x-ray can be normal in up to 50% of people who have interstitial lung disease. Yeah. And similarly that spirometry can be normal and that it can even be an obstructive picture if they have coexisting COPD. So really the investigations aren't that reliable yeah it's quite worrying I guess um that was sort of a point for me as well was um we see so many coughs and so much COPD and asthma um that I think the diagnosis of interstitial lung disease was has just been dropping off my radar slightly uh, since my um time in rheumatology and so so now it's just kind of reinforce that message of like put it back up and don't be reassured by chest x-rays and things if if there are risk factors there exactly it really hammered home the point about having a low threshold for suspicion and referral early on i agree especially with what he was saying about the idiopathic type and the life expectancy only being about three to five years which is terrible isn't it really yeah and sometimes that we're referring through so late that palliation is the only option Yeah. yeah 
Yeah, and also actually the information about pulmonary rehab was really interesting um, to know that it's not just an exercise program, that they give kind of holistic advice, um, which is something that I'll definitely be using when I'm telling patients about it in the future. Yeah, that's really lovely, isn't it? It sounds like there's some good support out there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the last probably point that to mention that, well, there's loads in there, but um, I, I took away about that, that step change that he mentioned for um, patients who are kind of having a, an exacerbation or a flare of, of symptoms. Um, yes, treat them um, with steroids or antibiotics as appropriate, um, but don't always presume that it's infection and making sure that they are getting better after that step change and look for the red flags you know consider other things yeah yeah uh, but yes as always you can get in contact with us in a number of different ways and um, we have an email address which is primary podcasts at gmail.com and we are also on twitter and our handle is at pckb podcast we love hearing what everybody has to say about the podcast um, and enjoy getting um, comments and chats on twitter and through email so if you've got any feedback or any suggestions um, and you're thinking about getting in touch then please do and uh, thank you to everybody who has already um, reached out to us. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, the surveys that are being filled on are really, really interesting reading and we're taking it all into consideration. Um, and then also, if, if, you, if you like us, please share that with people that you think might also enjoy the podcast. Yes, word of mouth is um, the best thing for us. Um, so if you want to tell a friend, um, we'd really appreciate it. Oh, and actually, um, also, if anybody out there knows um, anybody in the Greater Manchester area that's given some really good teaching that you think would be a good specialist or um, a gypsy to get on the podcast, then drop us an email, give us their details, and we can start compiling a list of all the great people in the Greater Manchester area. Absolutely. So, till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. guys just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public they were recorded in greater manchester in 2019 guidelines can vary by location as well as over time so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions Uh, the content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice it's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode